This is Africa Digest. It's a Thursday, the 14th of September 2017. Hello and welcome to Africa Digest. You are listening to Channel Africa giving news from an African perspective. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa and also on Channel 802 on the DSTV audio bouquet. My name is Luyanda Maume and I'm standing in for Spumelele Zondi today. With me on the show is Rala Nitulo, Amanda Machaka and Musibudi Makura. Your top stories now. Eight Kenyans petitioned the High Court for the removal of the country's electoral commission. An initiative by Tunisia's president to make inheritance and marriage rules fairer to women said to rock the Muslim world. In economics, Uganda signs an oil exploration deal with Australian firm. And in sport, FIFA releases the latest football rankings. Details on these and other stories as we progress with the show. But right now, let's get your latest news. Here's Jolani Tulo. Thank you, Leander. Good afternoon. The European Union has urged the Kenyan Electoral Commission to conduct reforms to provide for successful presidential polls next month. The EU has recommended that the Commission develop more transparent procedures for counting, tallying and results transmissions. Kenya is preparing for fresh presidential elections next month after the Supreme Court nullified the August polls. Sarah Kimani reports. The European Union termed this month's Supreme Court ruling as a display of the judiciary's independence and called on all sides of the political divide to respect the ruling and the country's independent institutions. Ahead of the fresh polls, the EU, which last month said it had not seen evidence of manipulation of the country's electoral systems during the August polls, has made 18 recommendations ahead of the fresh polls set for October the 17th. It recommends reforms in the counting, tallying and transmission of results, including testing of procedures well ahead of the polls. The EU says the reforms will help Kenyans rebuild their confidence in elections. The Nelson Mandela Foundation has hit out at criticism on former President Nelson Mandela by Zimbabwean President Robert Mugabe. Mugabe has said Mandela was a sellout and that he was to blame for black poverty and the fact that whites still control the economy. The foundation says Mugabe's criticism rings hollow and that Mandela spoke in 2008 of the tragic failure of leadership in Zimbabwe. It says South Africa now has to find ways to accommodate millions of Zimbabwean migrants fleeing an economy ruined under Mugabe's watch. South Africa's Supreme Court of Appeal has reserved judgment in the President Jacob Zuma spy tapes case. Zuma appealed a ruling by the High Court in Pretoria that a 2009 decision by the NPA to drop 783 fraud and corruption charges against the President was irrational. Zuma's counsel conceded that decision did not make sense and it seems the President may now have his day in court. All eyes are now on the National Prosecuting Authority's head, Sean Abrams, on when the president could be prosecuted. He has thus far refused to prosecute the president's friends, the Gupta brothers, despite a string of emails possibly linking them to state capture. The opposition DA says it will study the Supreme Court of Appeals' written ruling to map a way forward.
Russian environmental activist Vladimir Silviak says South Africa has the potential to become Africa's energy leader if it were to go far for an energy mix that includes wind and solar. Silviak and Chris Williams, an energy activist from the U.S., are in South Africa on a speaking tour of the dangers of nuclear enemy, en- energy. Rather, Their visit comes months after a Western Cape High Court judgment which set aside nuclear agreements signed by South Africa with Russia. Selvaik says the battle is far from over. If, for example, President Zuma and President Putin sign a new agreement like that, people would have to go to court again and try to cancel it. So, I mean, the fight is far not over, even if the decision of court was a very big victory for civil society in South Africa. Right now, South Africa is looking at a future energy policy, a true integrated resource plan. And it's very important that people get organized. They make their opinion public. And finally, U.S. President Donald Trump has denied reaching a deal with Democrats in Congress to stop young undocumented migrants from being deported from the United States. The two top Democrats in Congress said they agreed to work rather with the president on a package of border security measures. The BBC's Steve Jackson has the details. Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi announced late on Wednesday that they'd reached an agreement with Mr Trump. In return for their cooperation on a border security package, they said, the president would halt plans to deport migrants brought illegally into the US as children. But in Mr Trump's first tweets of the day, he said there'd been no deal and massive border security would have to be agreed in exchange for this concession. This apparent about-turn may well have been prompted by the furious reaction from hardline Republicans to the announcement of the deal. In particular, the suggestion from the Democrats that they hadn't agreed to any funding for the President's promised wall with Mexico. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo. Africa Digest You're listening to Africa Digest. Let's say thank you very much there to Jualani Tulo with that uh, news bulletin. And remember, you are listening to Africa Digest here on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. In fact, we are giving you news from an African perspective. My name is Luanda Maume. Today I'm standing in for Spumelele Zondi. Let's get straight on to our first stories now. In Kenya, three voters and five activists have filed a case in the country's high court with the express purpose of removing the Electoral Commission, which was blamed for malpractices and irregularities that, that led to the nullification of President Uhuru Kenyatta's re-election last month. James Shimanyola is our eyes and ears in the capital Nairobi, and he earlier joined us, joined us on the line for an update. In a nutshell, three Kenyan voters have gone to court. What they are pursuing, as well as the activists you referred to, is for the court to consider evidence that they are about to adduce in that very court between the 20th and the 22nd of this month with a view to 
treating the conduct of the Electoral Commission, they argue in their claim that if the Commission continues to do uh, the work as it did last time when it bungled the presidential election, then Kenyans or Kenyan voters will be back to square one, meaning another repeat. So that's their strong element of argument. Now, we understand that veteran opposition leader Raila Odinga and uh, President Uhuru Kenyatta's group are to meet uh, the country's electoral commission. What's the purpose of their presence there and what time are they meeting? First of all, two attempts have failed to materialize to the extent that the two leaders or their representatives were to meet the uh, electoral commission with a view to discussing the way forward means there are certain areas that Odinga's um, uh, group feels have to be rectified. In short, those areas related to colleagues of the chairman of the electoral commission and the CEO, chief executive officer, in that they have colleagues that played a pivotal part in messing up, if I can use that word, the electoral process that compelled the Supreme Court to annul the re-election of Europeanata. They wanted to be exiting as quick as possible before the election. And then Kenyatta on his side, maybe having one or two people that he may be disagreeing with. So he may point out that through his representatives. But the whole picture that we are waiting for is for the Electoral Commission to ensure the country that no repeat of what happened will be happening in the I mean, in the October 17th uh, repeat election. Let us now um, put the spotlight on an incident that occurred yesterday in uh, Kasimu City, west of Nairobi. One of Odinga's uh, strongholds there, a woman holding an election meeting, were attacked by angry youth. Why were they attacked, and is this an indication that election-related violence is uh, happening um, in the countdown to the elections? So much you said rightly on Lake Victoria, west of Nairobi. It's a place that uh, has the central uh, port of votes for Odinga. So anything happening there, people outside, like uh, where you are, may think that uh, there's something bad coming to happen. No, I don't think there is uh, violence or that that is a sign of violence in the days to come. However, these women were allegedly planning or were in the process of allegedly selling their identity cards. Identity cards in Kenya, for your information, and for South Africans and the rest of Africa and the world, is very important tool when it comes to voting. You go there, you show it, you vote. You don't have it, you don't vote. So once I sell, I, James, sell my ID for a few shillings or a few rands, and then it is taken. Now, they take it to hide that particular ID. Assuming they collect about 20 or 30,000 or even 50,000 IDs, pending you to, to appear, not to appear at the election uh, voting uh, booth, it means you have denied certain candidates 50,000 votes.
So in short, while they were selling their identity card to people that wanted them not to vote, and that's why the youth were alerted, they swung into action and attacked the women. It's not um, usual, but that is one element that... Um, they that's our correspondent in Nairobi, James Shimanyula, on the line earlier on talking there to Zikona Meso. Malawi government says it will table a bill of the electoral reform following a special law commission consultations that will lead to a fair voting system so that after the next election in 2019, Malawians can see leaders at the front of a government that reflects the votes of the people. The Special Law Commission found that the election of the president through the present first-past-the-post mode has challenges regarding issues of legitimacy, where the winner gets less than 50% of votes cast. More from our correspondent, George Mhango. This bill is unique in the sense that uh, previously what has been happening is that uh, the president uh, definitely has to be the leader if it comes to vote counting. But uh, with this bill, it means that any presidential candidate who amasses 50 plus one vote will be declared winner. But if he or she does not do that, then they have to go for a second round, which is very contentious. And currently, it will be needed drawing the much talked debate in the public and then political sphere. Now, with electoral reforms, what will uh, the, what will be the change here? Currently, if it comes to the electoral system here in Malawi, it's that of the first past the post, which means whoever leads is declared winner, even maybe without waiting for any uh, kind of maybe counting again or even if the, the target is not even agreed, but once, once anybody else who leads is declared winner, that is what what's happening in Malawi first past the post and also for the parliamentary kind of democracy, whereby whoever has quite a number of MPs, even if you have the little majority, but your president has won or your presidential candidate has delayed, definitely you're declared. And then you make maybe the, the, the majority government or the minority government. So it's dependent on the parliament as to which support uh, to give to the president at the time. What has been the response of civil society organizations? Currently, the voices that are coming from uh, quite a number of uh, political parties here in Malawi, more especially the opposition, they are backing this idea because they are saying that uh, previously it's like maybe the country has been ruled by those people that have not been voted by majority. So it's something that is very contentious. And when you look at uh, or when you hear voices from the civil society organizations, big human rights organizations, and the international uh, organizations, I mean, they are backing this system saying that Time has to, has to come when Malawi will be led by somebody else who has amassed the 50 plus one vote as opposed to the previous situation or the current leadership, which did, you know, get into power by virtue of uh, less than 40%. Now, we believe that a part of the bill enables parties uh, to disclose their financing status. Tell us a little bit about that. Uh, if you come to instances of democracy in Malawi, definitely, you know, a number of political parties currently we have about, about maybe 30 political parties, and now with the 2019 polls just getting very close, you know, political parties are pushing all the authorities to ensure that a parliament did, and the parliament should discuss this 
because Nadi Parliament will be sitting in November just to have a look or a review of the 2017 to 2018 budget, which was just approved in July. So they want to utilize that opportunity to press on the government to ensure that cabinet meets the legislative council, they discuss and then they amend and then conclude to the fact that this has to be done in 2019 so that 2019 should be you know, a time when uh, a president has to win using the 50 plus one vote. That is our correspondent in Malawi, George Mohango, on the line from, from Plantaya, talking there to Zikona Misa. Let's take a short break. We're back after this. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa, the African Perspective. We broadcast from Johannesburg in South Africa and our main aim is to provide you with news, views, knowledge and entertainment from Africa to Africans and listeners from around the world. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Diana Wanyonyi in Mombasa. For Channel Africa, I am Kumbara Munjarere in Johannesburg. Channel Africa, Kinshasa, Jean-Noël Bamweze. Reporting for Channel Africa from Zambia, I am Hilda Kekelwa. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. Welcome back. You're still tuned to Africa Digest here on Channel Africa, giving you news from an African perspective. Remember, you can keep in touch with us in various ways and various platforms are available to you to do so. You can uh, send us an email on info at channelafrica.co.za. That is info at channelafrica.co.za. And on Twitter, we are on at channelafrica1, at channelafrica, the numerical one. And also, you can send us an SMS is plus 27-796-957-930. And also you can send us a WhatsApp. It's plus two seven seven six three zero zero three three two seven. Let me repeat that that number again. It's plus two seven seven six three zero zero three three two seven. And once again, I am Luyanda Maume. I'm your host, standing in for Spumelele Zondi today. Now, the United Nations Conference on Trade and Development and the Industrial Cooperation here in South Africa have launched a report titled "Beyond Austerity Towards a Global New Deal." The report states that people should be should put pe- uh, profits before, uh, in fact, should be put before profits, calling for a 21st century makeover offer to offer a global new deal. It sends ending austerity, clamping down on corporate rent seeking, and harnessing finance to support job creation and infrastructure investment will be key so- to such a makeover. Dr. Diana Barrow-Claw, senior economist at UNCTAD, says the report sets out an ambitious alternative policy route to build more inclusive and caring economies. The main findings of our trade and development report this year for 27, it's titled Beyond Austerity Towards a Global New Deal. And we had six main messages in our report. And the first is that the global recovery that's taking place at present is simply not enough to help developing economies meet their needs. It's picking up, but it's not lifting off. We've got a small amount of GDP growth for the world of 2.6%, and that's simply too little for what is needed. We're also overwhelmed by the effects of what's called business as usual, with very low aggregate demand. There's an inability to really reform the financial sector in ways that are significant, and also still 
too much inequality in terms of distribution of wealth. We're anxious about the likelihood of building an inclusive and sustainable economy. Now, all of these things come together with this austerity, which has really become the macroeconomic mood music for our hyper-globalized world. So what the report about is sort of shifting the debate away from arguments of trade or technology simply and looking really at the role of market power and politics. And really what's described with the argument is in this report is that for prosperity today, we really need a global new deal where all countries can support a much more inclusive economy. Now, we can learn about this from the not-so-distant past because we've actually done this before. Um, the global new deal of the 1930s combined recovery of the economy with reform and of regulation and redistribution. And we really need this as much now as in the 1930s. So does the report have any recommendations then on how this global new deal should be implemented? Yes, absolutely. So we need what is needed for the original global new deal in the 1930s is just as important today. We need economic recovery, so a movement away from austerity. We need increased public investment. We need to have wages that rise in line with productivity. And very importantly, we need regulatory reform. We have to regulate this rentier capitalism where, in fact, corporate rent-seeking is non-productive and leading to often extremely negative implications for productive capacity and aggregate demand. We need to expand fiscal space as well. We need progressive taxes, stop sliding corporate tax rates, and, of course, redistribution. I mean, that's the final thing. This is what universal inclusive economy needs to be about, a redistribution of wealth to be more equitable. In fact, this is good economics. It's not just good from a perspective of of ethics. It's it's bad economics when we have a large proportion of the population that lacks sufficient income to spend and to support the economy. And can you just take us through the process of how this report was actually put together? So the Trade and Development Report is put together every year by the United Nations Conference on Trade and Development. And we are, we're a small part of the United Nations, a think tank that operates in Geneva. And we're the focal point on trade and investment and growth and macroeconomic policy. So my team in Geneva, or our team in Geneva, has been focusing on the macroeconomic environment that is needed to boost growth and to get us out of this rather stagnant and unequal global economy. So the 2007 UNCTAD report looks at the main barriers to inclusive growth in today's economy. And we're finding that the troubles in this hyper-globalized and financialized world that exists now, these troubles cannot be explained away just by technology or trade, as often occurs. Actually, the main culprits that need to be addressed are macroeconomic policy, which is often wrong-footed and has highly negative effects, such as austerity, about low investment and market power or growing market concentration and particularly rent-seeking behavior and winner-takes-most rules of the game. And our report is showing that actually all these trends have increased further over time. That is Dr. Diana Barotlo, Senior Economics at, uh, at Jungtat, speaking there to Ntlantla Masangu. An initiative by Tunisia's president to make inheritance and marriage rules fairer to women is reverberating around the Muslim world and risks dividing his country. Beji Kaid Esebesi argues that Tunisia needs to fight discrimination and modernize 
In a speech last month, he proposed allowing women the same inheritance rights as men instead of the current system based on Islamic Sharia law that generally grants daughters only half the inheritance given to the sons. To talk more about this, we are now joined on the line by Executive Director at the Afro Middle East Center, that is Naim Gina. Naim, good afternoon and welcome to Channel Africa. Good afternoon, thank you. Thank you for joining us. Now, you would agree that should the plan succeed, it would be a landmark step for women's rights in that country, no? Well, it would be a landmark step, uh, certainly uh, in terms of women's equality. Um, I'm not sure what it will mean for for the political situation and, and uh, the social situation in in Tunisia. I mean, uh, his SFC's uh, proposals are certainly not met by unanimous support. Now, the scholars and imams uh, have 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 re- I mean reacted quite uh, strongly to this. Uh, to this uh, uh, announcement, what do you make of that? Well, I think uh, the, the the scholars, the Islamic scholars in Tunisia, are responding uh, in general to um, from a kind of perspective of a particular interpretation and understanding of Islamic law. Um, so let, let, let me say, I mean, there's, there's two there's two major areas that that he's focusing on mm. uh, in these proposals. The one is uh, giving Muslim women. Um, the right to marry a man who is not Muslim. Um, this is uh, this is something that that is not usual in, in in Muslim society, but it's certainly becoming much more of an issue uh, and and more acceptable um, in among Muslims in the West in in particular. I mean, it's it's still not uh, a normal thing, I should say, um, that that's done by everyone, but it's, it's a matter of debate. So he's he's pushing that as as one boundary. Um, I think that that many of the uh, many of the Islamic scholars in Tunisia would be would be opposed to that. They would at least, at the very least, be opposed to it being imposed in this way by the state, rather than uh, playing itself out through debates within the uh, the, the community of scholars. The second issue, uh, second big issue, is around inheritance. Now, um, the, the issue around here is that. In, in Islam, inheritance is really not a matter of uh, personal choice. Um, when a person dies, there's a formula by which his or her uh, assets have to be distributed. Mm. Now, the question is about that formula. So, so firstly, by imposing that, um, that uh, women or whoever has to get a certain uh, amount from uh, inheritance um, is, is in itself, um, in, in some ways, uh, undermining the right of people to choose, of course, what, what they want to do. In Islam, there isn't a choice, as I said. Um, so, in terms of the uh, more conservative interpretations of Islam, which certainly most of the scholars in Tunisia would follow, um, when a person dies, his or her assets would be distributed So, uh, uh, to their children, for example. The sons would get um, uh, double the share that... Uh, a son would get double the share that a daughter would get. Um, more kind of progressive interpretations uh, suggest that that should be changed and, and it should be equal uh, rather than uh, two is to one. Uh, again, the problem here is that when it, when it becomes imposed by the state in this kind of way, it immediately raises problems. And, um, and, and what we're going to see, I think, uh, unfolding is that Esetsi is going to be accused of uh, taking a similar attitude to, uh, to religion as his uh, um, as his predecessor before the uprising, before democracy came to Tunisia, that uh, Zainul Abidin Ben Ali did. 
you know, Ben Ali passed a decree that, uh, that he, the president, should be the only person that is allowed to interpret the Quran, and no one else was allowed to. Um, SFC is going to be accused, I think, of following in that kind of line by imposing from the level of the state um, uh, the, these kind of uh, decrees. Now, several uh, analysts uh, have suggested that the president is trying to claw back some support from women that have mainly supported him uh, in 2014 after they grew quite a, li- a little bit disillusioned with him. What's your take on that? Well, I, I think that that uh, partly is it. Um, certainly in electoral politics, that's the kind of thing that does happen. So I think that um, he is definitely banking on uh, on, on getting more... Um, uh, more liberal women support uh, in Indonesian society. Um, however, I think that, uh, you know, just from a political perspective, um, that he, he needs to also weigh that up uh, in terms of the support that he could possibly lose and in terms of the relationship that he has with the opposition um, Islamist Annahda party. Annahda, by the way, hasn't, hasn't given any official uh, position yet on these, uh, on, on these proposals. So, um, so that 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 is uh, certainly it. But I think that he also is uh, is, is trying to um, uh, set up Tunisia as being, in a sense, uh, at the forefront of these kind of modernising issues in the Muslim world. Well, certainly the one that will be keeping a very close eye. But Naim, thank you very much for taking time to talk to us. Thank you. That is Executive Director at the Afro Middle East Center, Naim Gina, joining us on the line. And remember, uh, you can still keep in touch with us here on Channel Africa. You can send us an SMS. It's plus 27796957930. That's an SMS. And if you want to WhatsApp us, it's plus 27763003327. You can also find us on Twitter at Channel Africa 1. Let's take a short break. On the other side of that, Jolani Tulol will be here with your news headlines. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's international radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. Listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Nam, kwenye line ya simu, hivi sasa najiunga moja kwa moja. Farafina. Farafina. Terre de Soleil. Está na companhia do serviço em língua portuguesa do canal África, a voz de renascença africana que transmite a partir dos seus estudos centrais de Auckland Park, cidade de Johannesburg, África do Sul. Sochitika, Mu África! Informing the world about Africa, Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. Good afternoon. Let's take a look at stories making headlines. The European Union has urged the Kenyan Electoral Commission to conduct reforms to provide a successful presidential polls next month. The Nelson Mandela Foundation has hit out at criticism on former President Nelson Mandela by Zimbabwean President Robert Mugabe. And finally, South Africa's Supreme Court of Appeal has reserved judgment in the President Jacob Zuma spy tapes case. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo.
Welcome back. You are still with Africa Digest on Channel Africa, giving you news from an African perspective. My name is Luanda Maumen. Remember, still to come later on in the show is your economics update with Amanda Machaka, as well as your sports update with Musibudi Makura. On to our next story now. The Nelson Mandela Children's Hospital here in South Africa has announced that it has received its first patients in radiology. Chief Executive Officer of the hospital, Dr. Mandi Samaholwana, has described the first patient's intake as a milestone. The 200-bed facility was launched in December last year and caters for specialized treatment for children. Dr. Maolana joins us on the line now to speak about the hospital's operation. Doctor, good afternoon and welcome to Channel Africa. Good afternoon, Leander, and good afternoon to your listeners. Thank you for joining us, ma'am. Now, is the hospital running at full capacity at the moment? Uh, Luanda, the hospital is not running at full capacity at the moment uh, due to a decision that was made quite early in the process that we would phase in operations in line with best practices and international standards mm. of a facility of this magnitude, but also looking at the super-specialized services that are being offered by the hospital. In terms of percentages, how would you quantify the, the capacity at the moment? Um. I think we need to understand what was the rationale behind the phasing-in process. Mm. So basically, in terms of the phasing-in process, to ensure patient safety, we decided that we would start with outpatient services uh, that would ensure that as we gear up, we've got enough capacity to actually be able to deliver all the services in a safe manner. So the first services to be opened, like you mentioned earlier, was radiology services, which is an outpatient services, but it was accompanied by anesthesiology, the opening of a day ward, but also the opening of the pharmacy to be able to handle the pharmaceutical procurement for the sedation of the patients. Now, there have been media reports recently about the hospital fin- uh, uh, facing financial shortages. How true are these reports? And Luanda, I think that has now been clarified quite succinctly in terms of Treasury and National Department of Health commitment for operational expenses for Nelson Mandela Children's Hospital, starting with the announcement by the previous Minister of Finance of a 600 rands million commitment over the next three years for the hospital, which actually now in reality has turned out to be 650 million rands. So in terms of our phasing in process, we are quite comfortable and confident with the budget allocation for the services that we have committed to to actually provide in the first three years. Doc, when are you expecting to the hospital to run at full capacity? And a project of this magnitude does take time. Mm. And I think given the academics and, and, and the clinicians that have been involved in the setup and the process in the hospital acknowledge that it's not that we're chasing the target of having full capacity, but ensuring that when you open the services, we're opening them in a responsible manner, but also addressing the need of what we're trying to do in terms of the general health ecosystem in South Africa and Southern Africa. All you can do here, ma'am, is to wish you the best as you continue the work. And we think this is a, an absolutely amazing initiative in South Africa. And thank you very much for taking time to talk to us, Dr. Maolwana. Thank you, Luanda. That is Dr. Amandisa Maolwana. She's the executive office, chief, uh, chief executive officer of the Nelson Mandela Children's Hospital here in South Africa, joining us on the line. Let's take a short break. We're back after this. <music> Thank you.
This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective. Guess what? You can now listen to Channel Africa using Silozi, Chinyanja, Kiswahili, Portuguese, French and English, giving you an African perspective. Hi, my name is Tandalunyenzovo and you are listening to Channel Africa. We love Channel Africa from an African perspective. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. Welcome back. Now South Africa is in the midst of a challenging economic climate. Economists say they faced with budget constraint and reduced spending power. Small businesses will find it even harder to be sustainable. One such economist is Kandipai, Nasen's advisory and research. He spoke at a roundtable discussion hosted by ESCOM Development Foundation here in Johannesburg. He elaborates. When we talk about recession, we're talking about people's ability to buy things um, and obviously to sell things on the other side and basically you no know, people producing things and less people produce because obviously nobody's buying. I think for a long time we were starting to see those trends so even small businesses have been talking about this for a while saying you know we're struggling to find markets. You'll find a lot of people saying we can't find funding but actually what they mean is that they can't find markets because the people that they've been on now really selling to are not buying it. So when you're not getting people buying, it means that, you know, the people who are going to fund you are not going to give you money. So it starts very much about people thinking that actually what the biggest issue is about money, but the reason you can't access it is because, you know, things are difficult. You can't secure a market or, you know, clients and customers, which means people don't really readily want to give you funding because they don't see how they're going to get it back. So I think there was that crunch of, you know, in terms of demand for small businesses in particular. Um, and I think now we've seen it. But I think on the other side, there's also been a great opportunities. I mean, so there's a lot of people moving towards small businesses because of not just small businesses under pressure, but jobs. You know, we've seen in the, during the recession people losing jobs. And that's always the time when people start looking for uh, to start small businesses because if you get retrenched, you know, you're likely to get a little bit of money and you think, let me start a business. So it's also the time when you've seen a lot of um, new startups. So small businesses have been negatively affected, inability to access funding, and certainly the demand has been much lower than um, ordinary because obviously people are not spending as, as much. And whereas people, for example, are able to spend, they use credit. Many small businesses, of course, can't offer credit. So I know I run a small business, I can't really offer credit, but if big businesses will be able to offer credit, which means they can still sustain their clientele, whereas smaller businesses generally uh, recession can't actually um, offer credit, which means that they don't get them um, those customers that at that time can only rely on credit to buy. Now, with smaller businesses finding it harder to sustain themselves, what recourse then do they have, if any? Well, strategically, they have to go to think. Um, I think one of the things that small businesses don't do is to try to be as flexible as possible. Remember, at this time, um, you have to show your value even better than you did before. So this issue of value is a very big one where we say, Go uh, to your client, you know, start communicating to your client and showing your value even more. What I mean by that is, as your client think you are valuable, remember, clients look around and say, look, at this crash time, do I need this service, do I need that service? Discussing issues of how you're actually going to act with the client and how you're going to help them make um, better decisions and going to prove that they need you even better. Which means getting closer to your client, often um, as well, sometimes especially as you, as you grow, 
you sort of forget that one of the biggest things you've got to do is to keep selling yourself to your clients. So the one thing is very clearly to resell yourself to the client, making sure um, that, and then obviously exploring new areas of development. Again, you know, where you can show to the client that, you know, unlike big businesses, you can offer more value. And as a small business, remember, one of the things that we can do is be much more flexible because it's not like a big business where if you are, for example, outside you need five, you know, approvals because, you know, um, in a much smaller business, it's either you and maybe another person or just you being able to make decisions. So that flexibility in terms of uh, terms of business um, is a very important one. But it all depends on the kind of business that you are running. But I think, you know, showing value to your client, being much more flexible to make sure that you can meet the needs of the client, those are probably one big, two of the few big things that you can do. And how much of a contribution do small businesses make to South Africa's economy? Well, it's difficult to say um, because also it depends how you define small business. But it's, it's a huge contribution. Remember, they're actually the big, the smallest creator, especially around this time, um, but actually it's always been that. As big businesses grow, what they try to do is to be more efficient, right? Because once you have a big business like a, uh, a discovery or a, I don't know, a federal bank or a, 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 a shop, right? Once it becomes big, what they think now is to be profitable, we have to be more efficient, which means we start cutting off jobs because that's how they grow and then they say we've got scale and they're trying as hard as possible to use technology and things like that. Smaller businesses, as they grow, they actually hire more people. They don't actually, because they start with a few number of people and then they grow so that their contribution is continually increasing because they need more people and they can afford, you know, very expensive technologies, but they also need more manpower. So that um, sort of uh, pattern where smaller businesses are growing in terms of hiring um, and bigger businesses are slowing down makes them such a, um, a great contributor. But also in terms of value chains, where we see them across the villages, even of bigger businesses. So um, they're quite big, but it's difficult to see um, what contribution they make. I don't think that actually anybody has been able to measure it in any reliable sense. And would it be safe to say that despite the challenging economic climate, um, small businesses are still able to weather the storm because of, you know, the flexibility and the creative ways, you know, they're able to handle these challenges? It definitely can. I think not all, though, because I think also... It depends on um, on the skills of the small businesses. Some businesses started in the good times and they struggle, for example, with payment terms. So if you find you are struggling with your, client, your clients paying you a little bit later, so it's about how um, robust a business has been built, you know, how resilient it is. And you find that many businesses, and I think this is a very, very big thing to talk about in terms of say, uh, small business owners should try as far as possible to build resilient businesses that during difficult times, Actually, they can take knocks, they can sustain themselves, maybe. Because the sessions don't last very long. It might be a three to six month thing, uh, as we've seen in the last one. So it's never really like years. So can you actually survive a, a, diffi- a three month period? That would be difficult. And that's the question that many uh, small businesses don't actually answer to them. Catch reserves, clients, uh, contracts that allow you to actually survive the very difficult time. Cost structures that are variable, so to, be, to not have too many fixed costs. So even though you might have rent, but try as far as possible to have certain things that, you know, cost structure can be varied so that you can actually survive difficult times. We find that the, one of the biggest things that businesses, have, small businesses have to learn to do is to be resilient, and the only way to do that is to make sure it is the way in which you build yourself, uh, start yourself in a way so that when difficult times come, 
you can actually make it. I don't think that uh, small businesses are the most resilient, but they can be built to be so, and there are many that have this. That is economist at NASA and Advisory and Research, Tanti Pai, on the line speaking there to Ntlantla Masangu. Let's take a short break, and on the other side of that, uh, Amanda Machaka will be here with your economics update. You are listening to Channel Africa, giving you news from an African perspective. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective. Guess what? You can now listen to Channel Africa using Silozi, Chinyanja, Kiswahili, Portuguese, French and English, giving you an African perspective. Hi, my name is Tandalunyenzovo and you are listening to Channel Africa. We love Channel Africa from an African perspective. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. We have great news for you. Channel Africa has gone mobile. If you have a cell phone, you can now download the mobile app for Android. You can get it on Google Play. Get the latest news from Africa. Get the Channel Africa app. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspectives. Good evening, I'm Amanda Machaka with Economics News. African experts are saying some countries on the continent have continued to drag their feet about committing 10% of their national budgets to agriculture, which is why Africa still has not been able to produce enough food for its people. The experts are attending a two-day conference in Kigali looking into the implementation of the AU Malabo Declaration. Joseph Nyamboha is from Tanzania. Because of small budgets, African countries tend not to put enough money and the projects into developing agriculture. For example, at Malabo, they agreed that each country was to allocate 10% of its budget exclusively for agriculture. However, for many countries, that portion for agriculture has been reducing instead of increasing. The negative outlook on Kenya's sovereign debt by ratings agency Fish could be withdrawn if a fresh presidential election goes relatively smoothly and debt to GDP levels fall. Fish currently rates Kenya as B plus with a negative outlook and this has not been altered since the decision by the Supreme Court to nullify the August presidential election citing irregularities. A Fish analyst says if the second election goes smoothly and if the country achieves a decline in their debt to GDP levels, it could lead to a withdrawal of the negative outlook. 
The South African film industry's impact on the local economy continues to grow and has reached the benchmark of over 300 million U.S. dollars. The Film and Video Foundation says the booming industry has had a direct impact of $336 million on economic production in the 2016-2017 financial year. This is reflected in revenue, job creation and economic activity. The NFVF says the operations of the South African film industry have also raised the level of production by over $900 million last year. South Africa's energy regulator has given the country's power utility, ESCOM, the go-ahead to consult on its proposed tariff hike for next year. The power utility is seeking a 19% increase for the year that begins in April 2018. It says the increase will offset financial losses brought on by the technical recession. The hike will apply only to electricity bought directly from ESCOM. Those who get their power from municipalities could pay up to 27% more. And Uganda has signed an oil exploration deal with Australian firm Ama Energy, the first signing under a competitive licensing round launched in 2015. The production sharing agreement covers uh, Kanyuataba block, located near Lake Albert on the border with the Democratic Republic of Congo. In your financial indicators, the U.S. dollar is trading at 13.16 South African rand, 9.98 Botswana Pula and 9.27 Zambian Kwacha. It's at 0.75 to the British pound and 0.83 to the euro. In commodities, gold is at $1,324 and platinum at $981 an ounce. While the price of Brent crude oil is at $55.89 a barrel. And that's all for now. say thank you very much there to Amanda. Let's get your sports now. Here's Musibudi Makura. Good evening, sports fans. I am Musibudi Makura with the latest sports news at the Sawam. World champions Germany have pushed Brazil back into second place to return to the top of the latest FIFA rankings. Germany's 2-1 win away to the Czech Republic and their 6-0 drubbing of Norway in the World Cup qualifiers lifted them over the already qualified Brazil, who dropped points in a draw away to Colombia. Now, European champions Portugal have climbed three places to third, even though they are second in the World Cup qualifying group behind Switzerland. Another surprise, Argentina are fourth in the rankings despite struggling to qualify for the World Cup after drawing their last two games away to Uruguay and at home to Venezuela. Meanwhile, South Africa has dropped to 80th position in the latest FIFA World Rankings, shocking back-to-back World Cup qualifying defeats to Cape Verde's Bafana Bafana with only a slim chance of seeing their name in the first of December draw for next year's finals to be hosted by Russia and the CAF region Stuart Baxter's charges have fallen to 18th position while Cape Verde have jumped to 14th position. Egypt maintains their top spot as Africa's top ranked country with Tunisia moving to second position. African giants Nigeria have dropped to fifth place. 
South Africa's under-20 women's football team is getting ready to face their Namibian counterparts in a crucial FIFA under-20 World Cup qualifier. The first leg takes place at the Dobsonville Stadium south of Johannesburg on Sunday afternoon with kickoff set for 3 p.m. Central African time. Basazana played a friendly match against Swaziland's women's national football team last weekend and went on to beat them by five goals to nil. And even though the team is brimming with confidence ahead of Sunday's clash, Basazana head coach Maud Kumalo admits they do don't know much about their opponents. For now, you know, uh, actually, we haven't have an idea exactly how uh, uh, Namibia play and what kind of players they have, things like that. We haven't seen any game of them, I think. Um, but some of the girls, they play there with the Namibia at the Zone 6 game. So, but we hopefully before we approach the, the, the game, uh, the, the next day, we'll be knowing what kind of a team they have in Namibia and then we'll take it from there. On to Rugby News, Springbok coach Alistair Kotsia has made three changes to the team to play against the All Blacks of New Zealand and they cast the Lager Rugby Championship in Albany on Saturday. Prop Ron Drea will start in place of the injured Queenie Ostazen. Franco Mostart returns from resting to start in the second row alongside Ibn Itzbeth with Peter Spieth Detroit dropping to the bench and Jean-Luc Dupree comes in on the flank in place of the injured and I said it before that no matter who comes in, that person has still got a job to do for the All Blacks. Likewise, in our side, you know, we've lost uh, Franz Mullerba, number one tight head. We lost Julian Redlingas as also a top tight head, you know, in the country. And, and then we've got Kuni Wistes in now, also out. So, 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 you know, a guy like Vincent Koch has also been an f- unbelievable tight head for the country, and he's left and he's playing in Europe now. So, uh, I think... What, how we look at it is who we have, and we've got to make do with that and get the best out of, of those players. Um, Ron Dreyer's had a great uh, Super Rugby season, and then Trevor Nakani as well. And I've got Ruan to start this weekend for the very same reason I suppose Steve is doing, uh, because Trevor Nakani is always bringing impact of the bench like White Crockett in, in, in your case. So that's uh, exactly how I see it. I did it in the third test against France as well. Well, Kotsia says it will take a 23-man effort to beat the All Blacks and that uh, his team must be wary of the moments before and after halftime where the New Zealand have proven to be lethal. I'm, I'm not one to talk about uh, results and focus on the results. You can hope to get the result, but I think the big thing is, is to make sure you put yourself in a position to get it. And uh, we've really worked hard for this one. We've prepared well. Uh, it's a great opportunity. It's always great to play the All Blacks in New Zealand. And uh, like I say, you, you can't hope to win a game. You've got to go out and do it. And the players understand and realise that. Well, the Zaya Sports News at the Sour. Stay tuned to Channel Africa for more news from an African perspective. This is Africa Digest. Let's close the show now by taking a quick recap of your top stories. Eight Kenyans petitioned the High Court for the removal of the country's electoral commission. 
an initiative uh, by Tunisia's president to make inheritance and marriage rules fairer to women set to rock the Muslim world. That brings us to the conclusion of Africa Digest from myself, your host, Luanda Maume, technical producer, Sishen Jovi, and the rest of the team. Thank you for listening. Remember, for comments on the show, you can send us an email to info at channelafrica.co.za send us an sms to plus two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero a whatsapp plus two seven seven six three zero zero three three two seven tweet us at channel africa one taking us to the top of the hour is some wonderful music from the african continent from until next time good night and god bless